church. And we're going to go to a few passages here in a moment, but I want to actually do a little Bible aerobics for a moment and make sure you get your aerobics in. Wow, look at all those children. That's great. Um, and adults, too. So I, I don't know if they're helpers, but either way. Uh, go in your Bibles to John 15 for just a moment. Go in your Bibles to John chapter 15. Um, or your Bibles or your tablets or your phones. John chapter 15. And, you know, um, last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. And, and the Coulson Center and their Breakpoint podcast, you know, shared something about identity in Christ versus union with Christ. Jesus says, I'm the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Verse four, abide in me. That means to remain in him. Abide in me and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. As Christians, we have union with Christ. Like a vine, um, like a branch connected to the vine. The last 50 or 60 years, people started talking about identity with Christ or identity in Christ. But here's an interesting thing. As Christians... As human beings, we still have our identity. But our identity is united with Christ. A tree branch, if you cut it off a tree, within a couple of days, what happens? It starts to lose its color. The leaves start to you know, rot and fall apart and decay and all that stuff. And that happens to us if we are disconnected from Christ. But we have union with Christ. We are united with Christ. And if you, any of you want to sh- uh, read an article more about that, I'd be glad to share it with you, um, as well as other things I've shared about John 15 itself. We are united with Christ. We have the Holy Spirit within us. And apart from him, we can do nothing. Now turn back to Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, which is going to help us segue specifically to our passage today and our answers in Genesis In Luke chapter 3, we see that John the baptizer prepares the way of the Messiah. And then in verses 23 through 38, we see the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. The genealogy of Jesus the Christ. The genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the anointed one. And at the very end, Luke says in verse 38, the son of Enos the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus' ancestry.com goes back to God the Father. Jesus' genealogy goes all the way back to God through Adam. And ultimately, all humanity does as well. And that's what we're going to be looking at. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 5, we're going to be looking at today the idea of being created in the image of God. Being created in the image of God. And if you notice, if you look at Jesus' genealogy, as I've shared before, Matthew's genealogy doesn't go back that far. Matthew's genealogy does not go back all the way. Matthew lists Jesus' genealogy, but he doesn't go back as far as Luke does. And as I've shared before, it's kind of like Luke uh, 
Luke wanted to show Jesus' genealogy going all the way back to God the Father. All the way back to God the Father. Whereas, if you look at, um, if you look at Matthew's genealogy, uh, where is it? It goes back to... Um, Let's look, Matthew chapter one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abram. Abram was the father of Isaac. So Matthew goes back to Isaac, I mean, back to Abram, but Luke goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And that's likely because Luke was written to a Gentile, a Gentile, a non-Jewish group. And Matthew was writing to a Jewish group. So Matthew is saying, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And Luke is saying, Jesus is the Messiah of the whole world. And every human being goes back to Adam and Eve. Notice that in Matthew's genealogy, there's no space allotted, nothing given to a time period of evolution where people were evolving to become human beings. No, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve go all the way back to God. So we've been talking about the importance of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And I do not believe that we are accidents. No, we are created and created in the image of God. With intent, we are image bearers of Lord God Almighty. And there are cataclysmic consequences of taking that away, of believing that we are accidents, that we are random chance, that we happened by random chance. No, that is not what happened at all. And so in Genesis 5, 1 through 2, we once again see a restatement of the idea of male and female being created in the image of God. I read this, um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict had an update a few years ago, and with each update, the book is thicker and thicker and thicker. And this section that I want to read, from you, read, read for you word for word was just so powerful about the history of human beings. And listen to this. It says, Evolutionary biologists have faced great difficulty in trying to explain the origin of human language in evolutionary terms. They cannot explain the origin of human language in evolutionary terms. A 2014 paper co-authored by leading evolutionary paleoanthropologist admits that we have essentially no explanation of how and why our linguistic computations have developed. I lost my place. I'm sorry. <laughs> and it goes on. And the origins and evolution of our linguistic capacity remains as mysterious as ever. Since uh, uh, studies of non-humans, non-human animals provide virtually no relevant parallels to human linguistic communication and none to the underlying biological capacity. Under a biblical view, however, one would expect humans to have a distinct form of communication not seen amongst lower animals. In other words, when we view the world through the lens of the Bible, a biblical worldview, we would expect human beings to have a different form of communication than other animals. A biblical view also makes it reasonable to expect that stories concerning our ancient ancestors would persist in cultures around the world. These stories would have been preserved as oral traditions until systems of writing were developed. The Sumerian civilization in southern Mesopotamia, which would be 3500 to 2000 BC, to put in perspective, they existed 3500 years to 2000 years before Christ. And the Sumerian civilization is credited with developing the world's first written language. 
The oldest written Sumerian records date to 3100 BC, 3100 years before Christ, and that's something like 5100 years since today. The system of writing was used, uh, was used was a pictograph type of cuneiform, which gradually changed to conventionalized linear drawings. These were pressed into soft clay tablets with the edge of a stylus, giving it a characteristic wedge-shaped appearance. Cuneiform was adopted for use in other languages, for example, Akkadian and Babylonian. Archaeologists have uncovered thousands of cuneiform tablets in the Middle East. Many of these have been studied and translated by scholars around the world, enabling them to gain great insight into ancient Near East beliefs about origins. Now, I find that very interesting, but this gets more interesting. Or if you allow me to coin a term, interestinger. (laughs) Chinese characters. There is written evidence for the first humans from a civilization far from Mesopotamia. Ancient China. Modern Chinese can trace its roots to inscriptions that have been found on oracle bones dating back to the second millennium BC. So that's around 2000 to 3000 BC. Chinese has remained a pictograph based language since that time, although the characters have changed over the centuries. The characters used today have been grouped into six categories. As described, for example, by Chan Kai Tong, two of these categories are pictographs and ideographs. Pictographs depict objects while ideographs convey abstract ideas and are composed of two or more pictographs. A study of ideographs reveals some of the stories that inspired the ancient people who developed them. Now, as I share these stories from Chinese pictographs, they are very similar to the story of Adam and Eve and the Bible, even though these date back way before we know of missionaries getting to China. Thong demonstrates how several ideographs show clear consistency with the Genesis account of Adam and Eve and their disobedience in the Garden of Eden. The three examples listed below, which I'm going to read, are formed using these pictographs, mouth, tree, female. Sound familiar? Mouth, tree, female. The symbol shu, meaning to restrain, is represented by a mouth superimposed over a tree. This correlates the first restraint placed on Adam, namely the prohibition from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The symbol ion, meaning to covet, is represented by two trees on top with a female on the bottom. The use of two trees correlates with the two key trees in the Garden of Eden, the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. The female correlates with Eve, the first human to covet something forbidden, the fruit fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Thong notes, the composition of this character is even more interesting when one recalls that in ancient China, women had no place in society. In ancient China, women had no place in society, yet this symbol correlates with the biblical narrative using a woman. Yet the ancient Chinese chose to use the character for woman rather than the one for man. This shows that the ancient Chinese had some knowledge of the story of the first act of disobedience against God. Further, finally, the symbol meaning death shows that death is associated with two mouths eating from a tree. This correlates with Adam and Eve's disobedience for which they suffered the promised consequence of death. 
The fact that these three characters have ancient forms demonstrates that they were formulated long before the first Christian missionaries visited China, which is generally considered to be Nestorians in AD 635. While Thong has acknowledged that Chinese calligraphy scholars do not necessarily agree with his interpretations, he argues that one of the artifacts from the San Xingdu civilization discovered near Chengdu, Sichuan province, a bronze tree, this is really cool, a bronze tree dating to 1600 BC. That's 1,600 years before Christ. A bronze tree dating to 1600 BC supports his view that the ancient Chinese had some knowledge of the events from the Garden of Eden. This is 1600 BC, and listen, the tree includes fruit, knives protruding from the branches, as if to guard the fruit, a feminine hand reaching to the tree, and a serpent. That was 1600 BC, which would be something like uh, maybe uh, 3,500 years after creation, um, thereabouts. And here in China, they had this bronze tree. God created us in his image. We are designed and created with purpose. We are not accidents and neither is our language ability. And as the beginning of that, which I read shared, evolutionary biologists, paleoanthropologists, with an evolutionary worldview, cannot understand how we came about this language ability. It's amazing. My theme today is that in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, we see the restatement of God creating male and female in his image. This is a restatement. My application, we are not accidents. We are image bearers. We are not accidents. We are image bearers. Read with me Genesis 5, 1 through 2. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Paradise has been lost. Allow me to review last week's message and put this passage in context. More than that, allow me to review Genesis thus far. Let's do some summary because this, these two verses, that's what they are. They're a summary. They're a restatement. And paradise has been lost. Here we are in Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis 1, God creates everything. We have the big picture of creation in Genesis 1. In Genesis chapter 2, we have the micro, the detailed. In Genesis chapter 2, um, we, we, you know, we zoom in on Adam and Eve. We zoom in on the creation of Adam and Eve. We zoom in in Genesis chapter 2 uh, on how God had Adam name the animals and how God showed Adam that none of the animals are, are, are a companion for Adam. And then in Genesis 2, we see Adam, uh, we see God create Eve. And Adam responds in this poetic Line. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman. In Genesis 3, we see the devil in the form of a serpent enter the Garden of Eden, and we see the people sin. Paradise has been corrupted. Everything was paradise. Everything was perfect, and then sin entered. Sin enters, and everything changes. God, in his grace, says it is better that man and woman leave the Garden of Eden, lest they live forever in a sinful state. That was God's grace. God in his grace had them leave the Garden of Eden. God in his grace put angels around the entrance of the Garden of Eden to keep them out lest they live forever 
in a sinful state. After they leave the Garden of Eden, they do not have access to the tree of life and they will die. In Genesis 3.22. Do you ever think of death as grace? Well, if they live forever without atonement, without redemption, without these, these salvation terms, sanctification, without God fixing our problem, that is worse than death. So God set up a guard around the Garden of Eden to keep man out. That's Genesis 3.24. In Genesis 4, Cain and Abel are born, and we have the first murder. Paradise had truly been lost. We talked about that last week. And 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 I'm still amazed trying to think of that from Eve's perspective, from Adam's perspective. What was that like? They were in paradise, and now they are out of paradise. And there is pride, jealousy, anger, murder, polygamy, among other sins. Yet Adam and Eve would be alive for quite a while. And see the corruption. As I shared, Adam lived 930 years. And if I was a betting man, I would argue that Adam and Eve wept over the corruption. I would bargain this was very difficult for them to see. I would bargain Adam and Eve longed for redemption. And at the end of Genesis chapter 4, in Genesis 4, 25 through 26, Eve gives birth to Seth. And that brings us to Genesis 5, 1 through 2. Life continues. In Genesis 5, we see that life continues. As we see that life continues, we see that God is giving more grace. God is giving more grace. As long as life continues, there is potential for redemption. If God said no more, which God could have done and been totally just, If God said no more, there would be no redemption. He could have said, you're done. You're done. Those of you had kids, and most of you have, I think, um, you know, y'all know what it's like when your kids come at you and they're fighting over a toy or an object, and you don't know who's right. This goes on every day at my house, okay? You don't know who's right. Abigail says Mercedes took it from her. Mercedes says Abigail took it from her. So what's the solution? Nobody's going to get it. I'm going to take it, and you're not getting it because I can't arbitrate. I don't know who's right. God could have done that. God could have said, you violated no more. Of course, God in his omniscience knows who's right, who's wrong. But God could have said no more. God didn't. God kept life going. God had promised a redeemer in Genesis 3.15. God is faithful. So in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, we have an introduction to the book of generation. That's what it's called. This is called a Toledot, which means family records. We see 11, we see 11 Toledots between Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and Genesis 37, verse 2. We see this 11 times where it introduces a family record. Allow me to share a few words about the genealogy in this chapter though we will share more next week. The purpose of the genealogy is showing death. In Genesis 5, death is emphasized. They could not correct the problem of death. God is emphasizing that sin brings death. There is a problem, and it all goes back to original sin. Only Enoch escapes death. Christians must respond to death by calling on the name of the Lord, as the previous verse says. Notice verse 1. 
Genesis 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. This is a book of the generations of Adam. So this is the record of the descendants of Adam. Verse 1 is powerful. God created man. God made him in the likeness of God. And that refers back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God made him in the likeness of God. Man and woman created in the image of God. An image certainly is not just how they looked. There's so much more to being imager, image bearers of God. Uh, the idea of having a soul, the idea of having a spiritual state, the idea of being creators, the idea of being thinkers, thinking metacognitively, which I'll come back to. God created him in the image of God. Verse 2 continues, male and female, he created them. It takes male and female to reflect the image of God. See Galatians 3.28, there's no longer Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female. For we are one in Christ Jesus. God blessed them. God named them man, which literally means Adam. So we see the likeness of God, the image of God. Male and female were created in the image of God. And this is repeated here. This is showing design and intent. And I want to focus on that for the remainder of the message. Design and intent. The amazing applications of being created in the image of God. The amazing applications of being image bearers of God. There is great danger of a naturalistic worldview. There is grave danger of saying that we, that we evolved from random chance. Do you realize that evolution, or should I say macroevolution, large-scale evolution, evolution across species is based on death? One dies and you get better, and another dies and you get better, and another dies and you get better. I never understood um, giraffes. You're like, how does this fit? I'll tell you. I'm glad you asked. I know. Giraffes. Giraffes should pass out when they bend down to get a drink of water. I mean, they have really long necks, and they should pass out when they go down for a drink of water because all the blood's going to rush their head. They should pass out, but they don't pass out because they have a check valve in their neck, and that check valve allows the blood to stop flowing so all the giraffes don't fall down. Otherwise, giraffes would die of lack of water. In one generation of giraffes, by a macro large-scale evolution worldview, one generation of giraffes would realize we're not getting a drink of water. We need to fix this problem. And they would have to communicate to their offspring, fix the problem. I don't know how that would work. I just don't don't get it. Large-scale evolution is based on death. One generation dies and the next generation improves and improves. And there's a lot of missing pieces in this, in this, in this theory. A lot of missing pieces. I, I, so many pieces. There's a book, Darwin's Black Box, that gets into this. So many missing pieces. In Genesis chapters 1 through 2, we do not see humanity coming about by a process of death. We don't see it. Humanity goes all the way back to God, creating us in the image of God. It's not based on death. Let me ask a question. Are we getting better? We're not getting better, are we? I mean, I, in my personal opinion, we're getting worse. We can see some of that. 
But we also know by archaeological evidence based on houses in ancient homes, they, they used to be shorter as well. And so as we get worse, we get taller, just so you know. Um, so just making my case there. We're not getting better. We, we, we are not evolving better. We are not evolving better. A naturalistic, full-scale, macro-evolutionary worldview leads to the idea that people are of no greater value than animals. Uh, look at this quote from Peter Singer. Peter Singer is a professor of bioethics at Princeton University. He writes this. Therefore, Singer says, causing these animals pain, killing them for food, caging them while they produce eggs, shackling them and kidnapping them for exhibition in a zoo, subverts their preference, preferences and is wrong. The fact that animals are non-human makes no difference. In fact, an intelligent adult ape has more conscious interest than a newborn human infant. Therefore, faced with the choice of rescuing from a fire either a severely retarded infant who is unlikely to develop many preferences in the future and an ape, we should rescue the ape. To think otherwise is simply bigotry, an example of speciesism. That's the you know, slippery slope, so to speak, of a naturalistic macroevolution worldview. There is no difference between humans and other animals at all. Another quote, but this one against Darwin's theory. This says, Darwin's general theory that all life on earth had originated and evolved by a gradual successive accumulation of fortuitous mutations is still, as it was in Darwin's time, a highly speculative hypothesis, entirely without direct factual support and a very far and very far from the self-evident axiom some of its more aggressive advocates would have us believe. And then another one, if, Darwin, if Darwinism is atheism, and utterly inconsistent with the scripture, a denial of design in nature is virtually the denial of God. There are dangerous consequences of teaching and promoting an idea of random chance of this make-revolution um, naturalistic worldview. We've been teaching it uh, at least for, what, 150 or 140 years, and it really has not helped things. At least that's my argument. And there are a lot of holes in it. It's my theory, I'll share my opinion, that scientists who are atheists hold to that because it gives a view and hold to that in its full, complete scale. Even though there are massive holes in it, we don't see the transitionary species in the fossil record, for example. And they hold to that because it gives a worldview without God. But the biblical worldview goes all the way back to God. God creating man, God creating male and female in his image. We are image bearers. So let's look at some significance and applications. In God's grace, the human race continues. We must trust in God's grace. We must trust in God's plan. God is faithful and his plan is still going forth. God is allowing humanity to continue. That's what we see right here. We had sinned against God and yet we continue. We have sinned against God and we continue. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, the scripture says that they were created in the likeness of God. And this corresponds with Ephesians 4, 24, Colossians 3, verse 10, and Genesis, 20, uh, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We are image bearers of God. We were created. This means that we are subject to the creator. We are subject to the creator. We must submit to the creator, James chapter four, verse seven. We are finite and dependent. We must depend upon the creator. 
We are physical creatures and can't expect to be in a physical realm for all eternity, Revelation 21 and 22. Heaven is a physical place for all eternity. Being physical means that we need work, sleep, exercise, food, hygiene, relaxation, laughter, diet, and so much more. We were created in the image of God as physical creatures. That's what we see right here. We are a unity of material and immaterial parts. A physical body is essential to humanity, but we are more than our body. It is not correct to refer to the inner you as the real you. Our body is not evil. That comes from Greek philosophy. God created us as image bearers with a physical body, and we will have a physical resurrected body for all eternity for those in Christ. Being created in the image of God shows that we were created with intent. We are not accidents. We are not the product of random evolutionary accidents. We have worth before God. Think about it. Am I valuable for my performance? What if I fail to live up to my own or society's standards? Am I then of no value? Absolutely not. That is not true. We have value being created in the image of God. Every human being has value created in the image of God. There's a European nation that gloated that they had gotten rid of almost all Down syndrome. They did not get rid of almost all Down syndrome. They aborted Down syndrome babies. Every human being has value created in the image of God. We have worth before God. It's not about performance. It's not about looks. It's not about IQ or EQ or anything like that. And we can think, am I valuable because other people think I have worth? Will rejection destroy my value? No. We have value being created in the image of God. Am I valuable because I decide to invent Self-esteem, no. We have value being created in the image of God. Being created in the image of God sets apart from animals. We have the ability to think metacognitively. That means we think about our thinking. We have the ability to feel and to choose. We have moral responsibility to God for our behavior. We have the potential to glorify God by choosing to live in fellowship with him. It takes male and female to represent the image of God. We must not look down on male or female as both represent the image of God. We must not commit idolatry, knowing that humans are the visible representation of God. Human beings are the visible representation of God. There is no room for bigotry or prejudice. Everyone is unique and to be treated with respect, being image bearers of God. C.S. Lewis writes, this is probably one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. There are no ordinary people. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with with whom we marry, snub, and exploit, immortal whores or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. You've never met a mere mortal. There are no ordinary people. 
Since there are no ordinary people, I challenge you this week to write a letter to someone this week. It could be an email or a card or a written letter. But write a letter to someone telling them how much they mean to you. Write a letter to someone sharing your love and respect. I encourage you to consider doing it with handwriting, not email or electronic means. Heard Chuck Swindoll in one of his sermons sharing about how he was visiting at somebody's house and he walked up down the hallway and he saw they had framed one of his letters that he wrote to them. And he, he was taken back thinking, I never took it that seriously. I was just writing a little letter and here it's framed. Our letters are meaningful and you've never met a mere mortal. There are no ordinary people. Respect and love all people. We are all created in the image of God. We are not accidents, let's pray. Oh Lord God, we thank you so much for your word as we, as we study it and look at it and preach about it. And I thank you, Lord God, for the conviction you gave me to exhort Bethel friends. The conviction you gave me uh, for myself, certainly as well from the Holy Spirit. First and foremost, the conviction uh, for me that we take each other seriously. That we take our lives seriously. For we are all created in the image of God. We are all image bearers of God Almighty. We are not accidents. No, we are designed with intent and we are designed with purpose. So we respond, hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. This week, may we love you with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And may we love our neighbor as ourselves. We will recognize our enemy as our neighbor as well. For we are all image bearers of God. We are all image bearers of God. To harm another human being is to hurt a visual representation, an image bearer of God. Bless us and guide us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand and sing the first two verses.